Galatians 3, 15 through 18. I'll read. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pray. Father, guide us through this text as a congregation by, um, by your spirit and um, somehow, miraculously, Lord, through um, my words, as is happening in local churches all over the world. Um, sinners are standing up to um, speak your word to sinners, and somehow s- miracles take place in um, that somehow is by the, the person and the work of your spirit who indwells your people and who sanctifies through the word and who um, regenerates those dead in their sins. And, uh, Lord, our, our hope each week is that um, both of those miracles take place in our services as we gather and open your word and, and look into it. So um, we offer this time to you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So this really this uh, this passage is part of kind of like um, kind of like we did last time. We broke off uh, Galatians three one to fourteen and worked through it um, in a number of weeks. Really, this these this short four verse section is part of a larger paragraph that we'll be working through um, three three weeks. And, and the theme, I guess, if we're tracking with the themes that we've laid out so far, and I'll, I'll review them at some point here this morning, um, the theme of this text is the gospel revolves around the covenant purposes of God. So the logical fallacy of composition is described as this. Inferring that something is true of the whole from the fact that it is true of some part of the whole. So here's the logic behind that. A is part of B. A has the property of X, therefore B has the property of X. That's hard to wrap your mind around. Let me just give you a few examples that I found online from really the same site that I got that. Here's a few. Each brick in that building weighs less than a pound. Therefore, the building weighs less than a pound. Here's another one. Hydrogen is not wet. Oxygen is not wet. Therefore, water, H2O, is not wet. Here is one one more. Your brain is made up of molecules. Molecules do not have consciousness. Therefore, your brain cannot be the source of consciousness. 
Now, let, let, me, let me plug in the terms of Galatians to show that this, is, this fallacy is, is very close to the error that Paul's opponents were making theologically and that Paul is trying to correct. They're saying this. The Mosaic Covenant is part of the Abrahamic Covenant. Since the A is part of B. The Mosaic Covenant has the property of conditionality. It's A has the property of X. Therefore, the Abrahamic Covenant has the property of conditionality. That's the therefore B must also have the property of X. This is ultimately why Paul's gospel of justification by faith fell short to them. It's ultimately why they accused Paul of leaving Jesus on the hook for sin if justification is, in fact, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's ultimately why some in Jerusalem demanded, at the beginning of chapter 2, Titus be circumcised when he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem on Paul's uh, second trip there post-conversion. And it's also ultimately behind the pressure that was exerted on Peter in Antioch to withdraw from the table of, um, of food with his uh, Gentile brothers and, and sisters. Because to them, to those who are making this error, which they didn't even realize they were making, and Paul is trying to help them see they were making, Paul was completely disregarding the law to them. Because the law was full of commands and prohibitions and promises of blessing and warnings for disobedience. So yes, God entered into covenant with Abraham by grace alone and made many promises to him in that covenant. But, they're saying, God also gave the people of Abraham the law. This is the A is part of B. And they're saying A Mosaic Covenant, had laws that God expected the people of B, the Abrahamic Covenant, to keep, or else the blessings of A are void, and the curses come to bear. And if that's true of A, Mosaic Covenant, since A is part of B, the promises of B must also be be void as, as well. It's just some logic there revealing the fallacy of their thinking. And, and Paul has just come out of reminding his readers who, who love to, to invoke or to pull Abraham over to their side because they presume to be his sons and his heirs. Here's what Paul's been saying to them. Abraham was justified by faith alone when he was an uncircumcised Gentile. That's Genesis 15 and verse 6. And that promise of justification by faith alone was made in Abraham to all nations. That's Genesis Chapter 12 and verse 3, and one of the more, I guess, the more technical points that I made last week by quoting Genesis 15, 6, before Genesis 12, 3, what Paul is doing is he's reading Genesis 12, 3 through Genesis 15, 6, and he's showing us what Genesis 12, 3 meant. So he's arguing for justification by faith alone, and he's grounding it in the death of Jesus, and he's identifying Christ crucified for our sins and risen for our justification as the object of our faith. But now in these verses, in the ones that we've marked out this morning, he's attempting, helping them sort out the theological fallacy of their argument covenantally which is why the theme is the gospel revolves around the covenant purposes of God. 
He's sorting out the theological fallacy of their argument covenantally because this is the heart of where their error lies. And I just want to take a few minutes to acknowledge that that language may sound complicated. I understand that. But I want to take a minute to encourage you that you sort out these complexities already on your own, whether you even realize it or not. The reality is some system or some structure is in place in your mind already when you're reading the Bible. And, and for some of you, it's, it's second nature to sort out what Paul is sorting out here. Here's the key word. Dispensationally. Because that's the structure you've been taught. And what that means is without acknowledge, which I've been thinking about is second nature to you. You chop up or you divide up history usually into seven distinct periods of God's purposes and work toward mankind. And for you, the Abrahamic covenant falls into the fourth dispensation of promise for you. To you, the Abrahamic covenant was for Abraham and for his biological children, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the promises consist predominantly of two things, descendants and land for the descendants. So you read passages like Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, promising the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham's biological children after they turn to Jesus in mass, most likely for you in this seven-year period known as the tribulation after the church is removed at the rapture and God turns his attention back to the Jews. But in salvation history, this dispensation of promise in your mind marked off by the Abrahamic covenant ended for you at the Exodus or on Mount Sinai when God gave Israel the law which again for you became the structure under which God related to his people and even for some of you wrongly would say that God it was the structure in which God actually saved his people for almost 1500 years until Jesus came when the law was replaced with grace which is how his people are saved now until the rapture when it changes again so what I'm saying is for some of you, many of you, that's it's second nature. You don't even have to, to think about those terms. And I'm trying to relate that you think in these complexities already, whether you realize it or not. Others of you want to journey down the road to covenantalism. But the temptation on you is, ironically, to make the same error by just bulldozing salvation history and making it all level and flat and linear and smooth and equal so that all God is ever doing is saying the same thing in different ways. Which doesn't necessarily complicate things here, but it gets really sticky to me when we come to the new covenant and nothing about it is glaringly new. If it's just another outworking of the covenant of grace rather than the fulfillment of it, which is why we ultimately part ways with some of our dear brothers and sisters and other affiliations and denominations, we part ways ecclesiologically and sacramentally. Because while I'm not willing to chop up history into a bunch of unrelated resets, I'm also not willing to flatten it so much that nothing is ever new. 
And, and we'll wanna, I want to keep those conversations going humbly for our corporate benefit. My, my bigger point in that rehearsal is I know that some of you disengage every time I use a three-syllable word like covenant. As if it's too complicated for you or any more complicated than the, than the far less frequently used term dispensation. And all I'm trying to show you is you think in complexities like these already, you're just more comfortable with the terms that are familiar to you already, but you do privately already what I'm trying to do publicly as we walk through these technical parts of this glorious book. So it's not so much that it's too complicated as it is maybe different or new, requiring you to maybe learn some new vocabulary or even scrap one system for another so that what's new and complex to you right now might become increasingly common and edifying for you in time and ultimately the default lens through which you look at Scripture, which is the hope. And it's the hope because I think this is exactly what Paul is doing for his readers here. He's leading them to scrap one system for another because the system that was imposed upon them by Paul's opponents there botched the gospel, distorted the gospel, and was leading many people astray. So if the center of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul articulates it in Galatians, is justification by faith alone, and that center is grounded in a smaller bullseye, of the death of Jesus as our substitute, bearing our sin and enduring God's wrath, the broader structure in which that gospel with that center and that bullseye was revealed and preserved and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus is the covenant. But since there are multiple covenants in Scripture that we identify as such, they're identified as such, that one, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the New, and three covenants that aren't necessarily labeled as such, but are certainly described as such in Scripture, which is why we call these theological covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, because there's all of that to sort through. There is bound to be confusion and difference among finite creatures concerning how they all relate to one another, which doesn't mean that it's unimportant. Nor does it mean that we should stop striving for increasing clarity and approach it with humility. But it does mean that if we want to, more importantly, through the structure, know the God of the covenant... And the Son who fulfilled the covenants and mediates the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, it is going to take some effort and some time. And at times, the humility and the patience to learn new vocabulary and scrap one system for another. Which again, just leads me to what Paul is doing with his readers here. So here's just a preview. Whereas their error was due to a theological fallacy, Paul corrects the error with both logic and theology. And here's how he does it. He begins, as he says in verse 15, with a human example that moves from human to the divine. 
or from the lesser to the greater. It's a lesser to greater argument that he gives here. But then he quickly turns that theological as he applies that argument to the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. And if I can just uh, try to simplify this even more for you, his ultimate goal is to show his readers that the distorters of the gospel among them have their lens turned backwards. And in having their lens turned backwards, they were missing God's purpose in the covenant and ultimately missing God and the accomplishments of his son, Jesus, on the cross and in the empty tomb. And here's just a saying that maybe you can take with you as you sort this out. The lens of the covenant doesn't look backwards, brothers and sisters, which is what his opponents in the churches of Galatia were doing. The lens looks forward. And what I mean by that is his opponents there were reading the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which Paul narrows down to justification by faith. They were reading that promise through the conditions of the law that came 400 years later. So they were interpreting the Abrahamic covenant through the law and coming out with Abraham's children and his heirs are those who believe the promise and keep the law. Rather than processing the conditions of the law through the promises of the prior covenant. So, Paul uses logic and theology to correct their error, recover their gospel, and rescue them from wrath and curse. And I think the way that he does it is particularly helpful in our day to both flatten, flatten the choppy waters of dispensationalism by showing us that there is actual relationship and continuity within the covenants. But he also stirs and creates some waves in the still, flat, calm, clear waters of strict covenantalism by revealing superiority within those relationships, which is ultimately going to help us see Christ as Abraham's true seed and heir and the new covenant as actually new and marked by a glory, to use somebody else's wording, marked by a glory, according to Jason Meyer, that out-glorifies and consequently de-glorifies the old. So let's begin with Paul's argument from lesser to greater. His argument begins with really an, an everyday concept, and he actually says as much in the verse. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to once it has been Ratified, And if you're wondering, um, if, if you're trying to wrap your head about, around what he means, you get a picture of that, there are actually many examples in the Bible that we can go to to help us get a picture of where he's beginning this argument here. So let me just remind us of a few. One of them, Genesis chapter 21. It's, it's um, Abraham and Abimelech. Abimelech says, <laughs> it's not supposed to say kindle, you'll... Swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So 
Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Another example is Genesis 26, and this time it's Isaac and Abimelech. A few chapters further, it's Jacob and Laban and the pillar that served as a sign and a reminder of the covenant between them. A few books later, it's 1 Samuel 18. It's Jonathan and David, which comes up again in chapter 20 when David reminds Jonathan of the covenant between them. And again, two chapters later in chapter 22, when Saul, Jonathan's dad, learns of the covenant between his son and whom he thinks is his enemy in David. And he acknowledges in that, ver- in that text the very point that Paul is making in Galatians 3 here with this illustration. He's acknowledging that even man-made covenants are irrevocable, which is why he says no one can annul them or add to them once they have been ratified. They can be renewed, which I think is what we see with David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 23. I actually think it's all over the Bible. Um, it's, It's Genesis 12 with Abraham. And then Genesis 15 again, which is renewal, some clarification. And then it's Genesis 17, all to Abraham. And then later the same thing to Isaac and to Jacob. So they can be renewed, but they can't be annulled or added to, as Paul says here. Paul's obvious point in verse 15 is to show his readers that even on a human level, covenants are irrevocable. And, and, and I guess to risk oversimplification, because I'm sure this breaks down, but to, to to be willing to risk oversimplification, you get this concept if you're a parent, don't you? What's one of the first things that your older and wiser parents and grandparents told you when you first became a parent? They said you have to follow through in the things that you say to your kids, the promises and the threats. And that advice is meant to create caution in us as parents not to threaten or promise things that we don't intend to follow through on, but it's meant for the good of our children as well so that they learn that there are blessings associated with obedience and real consequences to disobedience. But if you threaten and promise and fail to follow through, you teach them that words don't mean anything, promises are empty, and consequences are just threats. And look, by the time your kids are... Two, they're going to call your bluff and own you. You know that. And you're ultimately teaching, unfortunately, probably worst of all, something very unbiblical that Paul is reminding his readers of here. That even, which I think is a key word, because he's only starting on a human level to use the how much more argument later on in relation to to God's covenants and God's faithfulness to himself and to his people. So even man-made covenants, once ratified, no one annuls them or adds to them, but verse 15 is not his ultimate purpose. It's just his starting point. So in his effort to sort out all of the complexities that his opponents were getting wrong to the distortion of the gospel, Paul is retreating here. He's, he's stepping way backwards to this lesser illustration that his readers can all relate to so that he can then proceed ahead to the greater reality by saying, if man-made covenants are irrevocable, verse 17, how much more are God's? 
So human covenants are the lesser. Divine covenants are the greater. But he's not just being general here. He's only starting general. He's bringing this up because a problem in the church is related specifically, as verse 17 explains, to how the law of Moses relates to the promises to Abraham. And even if his readers would not use or prefer the terms that Paul assigns to them, this annul or make void to describe what they were saying the law of Moses did to the Abrahamic covenant. Paul's argument is showing his readers that this is, in fact, what they were both teaching and embracing and leading others to embrace as well, potentially to their own destruction. Verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And you can almost hear what his opponents there would say. They would say, we don't make the promise void. All we're saying is the promises are fulfilled through faith, according to Genesis 15, and obedience to the law, according to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 27, and probably many other passages. But but the word and is the key there. So again, if we can talk relationally, they're functioning as if each subsequent covenant changes the terms of the original. You get that? By either adding to it or by annulling it and replacing it all together. Abraham believed in Genesis 15, but, they would say, he also obeyed the command to circumcise in Genesis 17. And not only that, but post-Egypt, post-Exodus, Israel continued to believe the promise about descendants and land, which is why they drove out nations and conquered lands. And they continued to obey the command to circumcise. But they also as Paul later reveals here and elsewhere, kept the food laws and the calendar and the law in general. In addition to, his opponents were saying, in addition to, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So they're saying, we're not annulling anything. We're just adding to the promise what God, through Moses, added and the people of God have followed ever since. And Paul, on the contrary, is revealing, as he says plainly elsewhere, Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And by adding, you inevitably annul. They missed the relationship. If the promise to Abraham was that all nations of the earth would be blessed in him, and Paul locates that promise as he does in our text, specifically in justification by faith for all nations, if that's true, which it is then, the law of Moses did not add conditional commands and prohibitions to the promise of justification. Changing justification from faith by grace because of promise to conditional by works. Did not do that. The law was given 
in part, as a temporary means of sanctification for those already justified by faith. It was designed to mark them as the covenant people of God and keep their eyes looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise, but not add to or annul. And if I could just uh, throw it out there and just sort of the things that... um, I'll explain. If If I could just sidestep for... A moment and go back to the categories that I referenced earlier, the, the dispensational, strict, covenantal, that I, that I hope you're just, in, as, as I am, constantly wrestling with. Because I want to be sharper. I want to be more fine-tuned, accurate. I want to, and the motivation behind that is not to be right. I want to know the God of the covenant and the Son who fulfilled the covenants better. So I'm not getting bored by the discussion or disengaging because they're big words. I want to know the God of the covenant better. The law wasn't a new era in salvation history where the promise was made void or paused until the end of time after this 1,500-year dispensation of law followed then by a 2,000-year parenthesis of grace. But nor is it a flat, seamless rehash in a string of flat, seamless rehashes that continues into the latest installment of seamless rehashes in the New Covenant where everything in the old has its one-for-one counterpart. And and again, I'm not saying, I don't think Paul's intention was to address and correct two prominent systems in our day of interpretation. But I just I find it incredibly helpful as I continue to adjust my own lens. So, so I hope that you're not hearing me speak as if I've got this figured out. What I'm telling you is I'm always try, I'm adjusting my own lens and I'm continually searching for clarity. And I find it interesting that Paul is warning his readers here in this text by these words annul or add to of something that I think represents potentially the downfall of both prominent systems today. Annulling, which is, I think, what choppy dispensationalism does, or adding to, which is, I think, what flat covenantalism does, and how many, if not most, covenantalists end up pedo-baptists. Because the signs and the commands that followed the promise and in Paul's language were designed to temporarily steward the old covenant to its fulfillment and its termination are simply rehashed and recast in the new covenant, which then ultimately makes it not very new. So his argument begins with a lesser to greater argument. And it says this, if If man-made covenants are irrevocable or unchanging, how much more are divine covenants? But then he proceeds to apply that argument specifically to the two covenants the churches of Galatia had mixed up. And he does this specifically in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. He's saying Uh, He's saying a few very basic and helpful things here. He's saying the two covenants are not the same. So the relationship isn't flat. 
But he's also saying they're not unrelated either because they were both given by God. And if man-made covenants cannot be annulled or changed, God didn't void or change the Abrahamic covenant by giving the law covenant. He's revealing here that there is superiority within the structure by design. And the Abrahamic covenant, which centered on an unconditional promise of justification by faith to all nations, that covenant with Abraham stands as it was originally given by God. Meaning, justification remains, even post-law, a promise by grace to be received by faith alone. The law was not given to change or annul the promise so that the promise is not so that the promise is not subordinate to the law. It's quite the opposite. In the structure of covenant. So understand, we're not talking about importance when we say superiority. We're talking structurally. The law of Moses does not override or stand alone or even alongside the Abrahamic covenant. It stands below it, both in its purpose as well as its subordination to the promise as its servant. This is why Paul concludes in verse 18, for if the inheritance, I should have checked the slides because I'm missing this one. For if the inheritance comes by the law, It's no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And for our text next week, which is verse 19 through verse 25, he's going to answer the question that Paul wants us to ask at this point, which is, why then the law? But what Paul does in our text before he answers that question is he clarifies the promise. So he he began, that's the one. So he began with an argument from lesser to greater, which says, if man-made covenants are irrevocable and unchanging, how much more are God's covenants? And it's meant to be an encouragement to you today that if you've been failed or wronged covenantally by man, God your Father and Christ your husband and the Spirit your friend and your God will never fail you or break his covenant. It is a sinful thing when man breaks his covenant. It is a promise that God will not. But then he turned theologically and he applied applied that logic to the confusion in the churches of Galatia over the law of Moses and the promises to Abraham, saying, the law didn't change or void the promise. The promise remains intact. It was given as its servant which again is meant to encourage you that you are not performing in order to earn something from God, not your justification, nor the inheritance that's been promised to you. God never tires of the word that he's given or the promises he's made, nor does he change the terms that he set forth in eternity And unfolded in time. And how do we know that? Where's the assurance of that? Well, I think he gives it here in our text. Which is why 
we skipped verse 16 on purpose because he says we know that and we can be assured of that because, as verse 16 says, the ultimate recipient of God's promises is not man but God. God is the ultimate recipient of God's promises. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is who? Christ. It's, it's very interesting what Paul does here, because if you, um, if you go home and you have a bag of grass seed, you don't call it a bag of grass seeds. So seed, offspring, is a collective noun, meaning the singular form represents the plural. So his readers are all about the plural biological seed of Abraham and the physical promise, land, descendants, and their contribution to the attainment of that promise. But Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, breaks the news that we have to break again and again and again, week after week in our gatherings, ultimately for our joy, that it's not about you. It wasn't about them. It's not about you. It never was. Not you, not me, not Isaac or even Jacob, but Jesus, which is not meant to be trite. And us only united to Jesus by grace alone through faith alone. And, and, and why is this meant to be a comfort and an assurance to you? Because we know that God isn't ever tempted to void or change the promise when we fail to perform up to par which every one of us do every day of our lives, but which Jesus never has and never will do. So it is you, the Father says to the Son, are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased, and by miraculous union through faith alone, with all of your brothers and your sisters, I am well pleased as well, the Father says to the Son, as long as I am well pleased with you, which will be how long? Forever. Todd Wilson. Pastor, writer. Refers to this passage for these very reasons as Sweet medicine for those who are addicted to seeking life in the law, meaning in you and in your performance. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is only a bitter pill to swallow for those who will to remain in unbelief. And if that's you this morning, I'm, I'm pleading with you. Reverse the lens. Cleanse the palate. Look in the mirror because it's sweet medicine for the salvation of your soul. And if you're here this morning believing the sermon and the Lord's Supper that is to follow is another opportunity to taste the sweet 
medicine again for your spiritual nourishment in Christ, which is the end to which I'll pray as the men prepare to pass the bread. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your kindness to us in, in Christ. We give you thanks that You've provided for us an endless supply of sweet medicine for the salvation of our souls. It'll never run dry because what Christ accomplished was full, complete, eternal. And it's ours by faith alone. So may this observation or celebration of the Lord's Supper be a sweet renewal by faith received from you of that promise for your people. And may it be a sweet ransom, rescuing of any who remain in unbelief this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.